Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Uh, pr- pretty terrible. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, well, we, we, are, <clears throat> we are off to a very late start on, on, on recording. Why is that? Well, I first I pushed you off because uh, if asked if we could start recording a little later, I had a little trouble uh, uh, getting out of bed. And uh, when I got out of bed and the movement started, that's when the trouble began. I, I'm, I, there's this famous methodology from Toyota. I think it's called the Seven Whys, and I think I'm going to I'm going to keep going down this path. And <laughs> and, and why is that? No, we need to we we need to keep this clean. Uh, well. Um, <laughs> I had my my what is perhaps one of my favorite meals last night, which is or yesterday lunch actually, which is which is spicy hot pot, and then uh, you know had had some drinks last night, and it's just it's let's just let's just get going with the podcast. <laughs> okay, we'll just do three wise. Um, uh, we have someone to thank before we go any further, and that is Wealthfront. They're an automated investment service built for the modern era. And it's making it easier than ever to invest your money well. How do they do it? Well, Wealthfront uses software instead of retail locations, salespeople, and so on. So it can offer sophisticated investment advice at low costs that were previously impossible. It's exploded in popularity in the last two years, and they now have more than $2.5 billion under management. Check them out at wealthfront.com slash exponent to get up to $15,000 managed for free. And you are uh, on my side of the world. I I am. Uh, well, I'm. I, it's an interesting way of putting it. It's. Uh, I could also argue that you're on my side of the world, and I'm back to my side of the world. I'm actually, yeah, back in Australia right now, which is exciting. It's nice to be. It's nice to be home. So Australia is is does get the home moniker. You know, that's a really interesting question. I think this may be the curse of the. One of the curses of the modern era in that when people ask me where home is right now, I'm never really quite sure what to answer, whether it's Australia or the US. And um, <laughs> it's funny, I, I went for a swim yesterday in uh, one of my one of the local pools here, and I, I knew I'd been gone uh, a long time because A, I wasn't entirely sure of which lane uh, which side of the lane I should be swimming on. And when I cross the road to, to go to the shops, I'm not sure which, which side of the street to look at for the oncoming traffic. But also I started to speak to a lady in my lane and she's like, oh, so you're visiting from America or Canada, are you? Just on the basis <laughs> of how I was talking. And it's like, when I'm over here, I'm not quite Australian. And if I'm over in the States, I'm not quite American. It's like this, this weird in-between thing. But again, I, I, you know, curse of the modern era, but it's, it's, a, I guess it's a, I'm lucky to be able to to experience both both. So yeah, the voice sounding like an American must sting. I, <laughs> doesn't sting so much as just it, I didn't realize. Uh, I mean, I guess it's <laughs> well. Actually, let me put it this way: I I remember uh, as a kid listening to the famous golfer Greg Norman. And he's an Australian that's obviously spent a lot of time in the States. And I remember thinking how strange he sounded, the the mixture of the two accents. And I was like, I'm never going to get to be like that. And I wonder if <laughs> I wonder if that's exactly what's happening. Ironically enough, it's not not that it stings. It's just uh, I didn't, you know, it, it gradually changes bit by bit. And you don't even realize it's happening until you come back and people are asking, oh, so you're visiting from from America, are you? I'm like. That's impressive that you can tell that. Yeah. Well, uh, the 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 analogy that I always like, um, you know, living someone is who's lived abroad for for many years. I mean, I first came uh, to Asia in two thousand and three, uh, which is a shockingly long time ago. Um, 
a third of my life ago, uh, is that the problem is, I mean, I, mean, I, I would imagine, <clears throat> excuse me, it's easier going uh, from Australia to the States just because, you know, they're both, uh, there, there, there are some cultural uh, affinities, even if, even mm. if there are differences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, I think, more stark coming, coming somewhere like here. <clears throat> but even in general, the, 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 the analogy that, that I like is, but you, you never are fully, fully acclimated uh, or, or, or fit in. Like, I will never be Taiwanese. And I think it's probably, <clears throat> especially in Asian countries, where they're so uh, heterogeneous or homo- homogeneous. Um, you know, every, everyone here is, 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 you know, is of a certain uh, ethnic class. Same thing in, in Korea or Japan or China or whatever. Mm. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely the white guy. Um <laughs> And so, but on, on the same on the same token, and you're probably experiencing this now. When I go back to the states, it, I don't fully identify with with the people I grew up with. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's a big gap in our experience. Um, and so the analogy is that it's like you're on a ship and you've departed port, but you'll never arrive. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 a it's a fascinating and fulfilling. Uh, life in many respects but there's absolutely downsides and and you know a sense of loss in some respects as well yeah yeah it's and again it's like it never it 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 gets rammed home to me most often when people people ask where's home or like you you're going home people people in australia say oh you're going home to the states and people in the states say you're going home to australia and it's it's I don't know. And maybe it doesn't become so apparent until like moments like that. You kind of half fit in both as opposed to fully fit in either. Yep. And anyway, I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I value, I actually think I find it valuable for um, analysis because, uh, you know, if you're not, by being on the outside, you get a different perspective by definition of someone being in the middle. I mean, you've met, you know, we've talked about in the past, not being in Silicon Valley, but just in general, looking at America or looking at Taiwan for that matter, or, 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 or other countries, um, you, there, there really is a, there's two parts of it. One, there really is a different perspective. Uh, but then two, you become so aware of what you don't know. And it just, it just, and I think that guides, uh, so much of the way you think about things and, and gives you, um, both the desire to try to understand and also mm. the appreciation that there is always stuff going on that you're not going to fully understand. Yeah, it's it's so interesting you say that. So I I totally agree. And the the outside part and it manifests itself in different ways. For me, it uh, it uh, I mean I, I think like you, I have an interest in politics, and it manifests itself in a detachment from things that you don't even realize that have happened. So, you you grow up in a place, and you you pick up affinities for um what, what political parties or things like that that you just get from the people you're around and from your parents and your family and so on, and uh, picking yourself up and moving yourself to a different place. Uh, you're able to be, you find yourself to be objective. It, it like resets a lot of those things, but you spend long enough away from that place where you grew up. It also, it begins to give you a degree of a, that same degree of objectiveness about the place that you've left as well. And so I, I found myself, it, it helps, 
it helps remove yourself from the situation and gives you a, a, an ability to challenge assumptions that you otherwise wouldn't have if you stay in the place because you don't even realize that those assumptions are there. That, that's certainly true. I mean, it's interesting though. There's a trade-off, and we're, we're, we're very much off on a rat hole now. But I think mm. it's interesting. Um, th- there is a trade-off though, and the trade-off is uh, you. Yes, you gain a certain level of objectivity, and there's no question that's the case. And for me, moving abroad fundamentally changed my politics. I mean, I grew up in 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 a um, you know in the blue collar Midwest, uh, you know, fundamentalist Christian sort of background environment and that certainly is not reflective of of how i view the world generally today um in 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 all facets um but at the same time the danger is you lose you lose touch and there's things that happen and things that matter that you increasingly mm-hmm. don't don't appreciate it. and it's like i reminded of our our talk about our uh, you know politics a couple episodes ago the quite literally when you're living at the 40,000 foot level because you're in an airplane uh, or however many feet up an airplane flies, uh, you're, you, you, you lose, you, you forget about the 10 foot level and the hundred foot level. Right. Mm. And, and so the danger is the advantage is you, is you get this kind of new perspective that lets you look at things. Yes. More to use your words objectively. The, the danger is you lose touch with, how those things and how those changes register for for normal people. I think that's fair. I think um, particularly in a place like the United States, this this may be less true for Australia, um, in which it's um, it, with the cities are very heterogeneous uh, inside the cities, but between the big cities, they actually in many respects look look very similar. But in a place like uh, the United States. The, there's a degree of heterogeneity that is so um, broad between place to place that it, even if that, I mean, I agree with everything you've said, but you only have you only have that ten foot level in a specific place. And you talked about coming from a background in the Midwest and and life inside, life uh, on the ground in a place like that versus life on the ground in Palo Alto versus life in the ground inside of Washington, D.C. versus that in New York City versus that in the South or in Florida is so very different that, yeah, you get get that very on-the-ground view, but that view is so wildly different from place to place that it's only of certain benefit anyway. Well, to a a degree. I mean, on the the flip side, I I would – I can't claim to be an expert on on cultures or places that that I haven't lived, mm. but the benefit of of the life that I've led is is a deep appreciation, as I mentioned, for for what I for what I don't know. Mm. And on on the flip side, you lose touch with what's happening on the ground, what people are feeling on the ground. It's not just that you lose touch with one specific locale. Mm. You lose touch with the fact that there are things are being experienced differently, period. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. Uh, we, we, we said we weren't going to talk about this, uh, but I mean, I, the, just the, the, it's been tough. I've just think about it a lot lately. Yeah. Like this, you know, what's happening in the U.S. politics, particularly with the sort of Donald Trump thing. And there's this, um, you know, w- w- this fantastic article 
uh, basically the, the, the premise is that there was a, a conservative intellectual bordering on white supremacist, kind of a crazy guy, um, you know, 20 years ago advising Pat Buchanan, uh, to, 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 to adopt basically what, what Donald Trump is doing as a strategy, which is basically throw off the traps of, of, of conservatism as, as understood in American politics, like low taxes and low regulation, these sorts of things. And, and basically be a, a pure sort of sort of populist um and weaving aside you know obviously the the there's all there's all sorts of stuff that are objectionable about about Donald Trump particularly the, you know a lot of the rhetoric um weaving aside like just some of the economic insanity some of the ideas mm. um but the rhetoric around around immigrants and and muslims and and all those sorts of things like mm. I hope it's obvious that that neither of us <laughs> abide by that. I mean, at the same time, like I, I'm, I'm just reminded. I guess maybe because I just happen to be on the on the two parts. Like I personally have benefited to such a tremendous degree from the changes in it, that 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 the internet has wrought, that the world economy has wrought. Like when you talk about a a quote unquote global elite, well, the fact that I go to like I I live I'm a United One K member, right? Like mm-hmm. I I visit multiple countries a year. I uh I make a a very nice um, salary uh, or amount of money. I guess I start with a salary. Like yeah. And on, it- on the on the flip side, like I grew up. Like I said, I grew up. You know, 15 minutes from my house is a, is a closed General Motors plant. Mm. That you know there are thousands of people that that don't have jobs. Um, I don't remember the specifics for that plant in general, but there's th- th- that's the entire Midwest is, um, you know, there is we talk about inequality. Well, you could the the the, the most compelling argument is that global inequality has actually decreased, mm. but U.S. inequality has increased, and you can step back and say, well, as a as a humanist as a or as a believer in in every person is unique and special and good it's something which this is what triggered the change in my politics is i'm married to someone who's not an american mm. uh and, and it didn't make sense to me to prioritize americans or american lives or someone else's shouldn't everyone be treated the same well you start with that we start with that assumption that that impacts your view on all kinds of things from domestic policy to foreign policy to all those sorts of things on the, on the flip side, if you're someone who's who, who's hasn't traveled abroad and, and you've grown up and and you stay in the general area and you see people you know or yourself or or your parents being being hurt and and impacted and the quality of your life seemingly to be significantly worse than it was when you were a kid mm-hmm. or or when your parents were kids, uh, yes, you can step back at a fifty thousand foot level and lecture and say this is better, this is good for humanity, or like we talked about before, that increased efficiency is good for humanity, AI mm. will be good for humanity, the technical revolution will be good for, for humanity. But th- that no one's going to hear that if... Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're spot on. It, it's, it's interesting because uh, around the... Um Around uh, New Year's, there were a string of articles coming out that were that were on the topic of how 2015 has been the best year in history for the average human, um, or so on and so forth. And it was um, 
I found it interesting because my reaction to those was it was it was it, it almost felt like people were trying to quantify the benefits to kind of quell the revolt you're talking about but what what it 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 kind of what what these proponents are forgetting is that and it also it almost relates to the um to the the quote that I mentioned last week that I incorrectly attributed to Snow Crash, but was actually William Gibson, that the, the futures here, it's not evenly distributed. It's this, it's kind of the same thing here where, yeah, on, on, on aggregate, on average, things are moving up, but that it's coming at certain people's expense. And it seems to be coming at the expense of a lot of folks in the in the middle of the US but i mean these are also trends that are happening inside of europe the rise of the rise of politicians and the rise of parties that look a lot like trump and i mean the 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 real income the i I, th- I think the statistic was the median household income uh in uh since the great recession is $4000 below the pre-recession level and and much lower than what it was in 1999 these folks are hurting and uh, everybody's, uh, you know, talking about how great the world is, uh, or the average person in the world. It's true. China and India, there've been some phenomenal improvements here. And you see the folks that are doing very well inside the United States tweeting out articles about how poverty is being eradicated and whatever. But what I feel like is being forgotten in all of that is that average is not being equally distributed. Uh, everywhere. And there are a lot of folks inside the US who are hurting a lot. And the rise of Trump, and to a lesser extent, I even feel that the rise of Bernie Sanders on the left, um, yeah. without without all the, um, the particularly angry rhetoric around uh, groups like, like stereotyping groups or, or whatever, I, I feel like this is a reaction to the people that have not been brought along on this journey inside the US. I know I, I I I agree. I, I just the the point is is, and this is why this is why I think the the urgency to speak up more. And believe me, I don't, I mean I would rather avoid talking about politics. Um, I'd rather not write a, write an article about politics for a simple pragmatic reason that you know, <laughs> like I'm I'm running a business, right? Hmm. Um, but th- I, I there's there's an increasing like this is why. We have to get smarter about this and and not lecture because the the fact is things are getting better right at at, at, a, at a high level. But if if you don't if we don't start working and thinking about how to bring people along mm. and make sacrifices, perhaps individual sacrifices, whether it be through tax rates or or whatever it might be to to make that happen, the, like the risk of the of a backlash is real i mean now i don't i don't think there's any possible way i i i still think it's doubtful that trump will be nominated and i definitely don't think he can be be, be elected president but like the fact that it's even gotten as far as it has like to my opinion it should not just be a wake up call to the republican party mm. like it's a wake up call to 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 us and 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 to people in tech and and now we have um you know we're entering a very i mean no one quite knows it's it's always foolish to 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 theorize about what's causing the stock market to do whatever mm, particularly mm. i mean 2008 obviously the stock market was down because everything was going to crap for understandable reasons um you know now it's it's a little more unclear but there there is quite there's a question like we have this massive plunge in oil prices which which is 
it's so large that it's probably out 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 balancing people driving more and, and saving money and spending more. So it may potentially be deflationary. You have China having its own economic problems, which uh, and the 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 yuan is 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 sliding, which is going to make Chinese imports even cheaper, which is going to be deflationary. And you have you have tech which uh, is making things that used to cost a lot be very cheap. Like tech is inherently inflationary. That's one of the big stories about tech. And the big question is, is do the productivity gains out, out, out gain the deflationary aspect of technology? Mm-hmm. Well, in some respects, that that's accelerating. If we're not getting the, the, the gains on the other side, like we're entering this very weird period where – we have all these deflationary forces, and in some respects, that's really good for people, right? People are spending less on gas. They can buy things that are cheaper, and they have these services, which which is what we were going to talk about, and I'm sure, sure we'll get to, where they're they're getting tremendous surplus, right? You can you you can use Facebook for the price of seeing a few ads, for which Facebook generates a lot of money for an for an internet company but relative to the number of hours that you spend on Facebook and the utility that you get out of Facebook or or, or is is completely out of whack right Facebook is only capturing a sliver of the utility that they provide which means that we talked about GDP that number is not going into it and so uh there's there there's this there is a very real disconnect that you can't be hand waved away by saying that things are getting better. I mean, yes, if you could step back and fast forward history so that it's instantly a hundred years from now, things are probably going to be looking pretty good, but we can't do that. We have to get there first. And yeah. And, and yeah. I, so uh, it's interesting that you pulled the recent economic, that there's been quite a bit of economic turmoil in the last couple of months, and it's interesting that you pulled them in, and I would agree with the analysis. But I would say that that the that what sowed the seeds of what we're seeing in the political, the U.S. political race so far is is broader than just that, and it's it's it, it's uh, this this yeah that that things are getting better in China and India. And there are these elements that you described where Facebook's making it easier to connect with people. And yes, those numbers aren't reflected in the economics. There's, there's no doubt about that, 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 that the GDP isn't, isn't an accurate measure for services like this. But the, 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 it, it's one of these things where uh, I, I feel like we see a lot of it. We we gain a lot of that benefit, and we know that other other people that aren't as fortunate as us as, as us are getting it. But we're not feeling the the same the same pain that they're feeling as they lag further behind. And and I'm talking specifically about the US. And this is one of these instances where, yes, on average, things are going up. But if there is a group that has a substantial amount of power, and middle America is a group that has a substantial amount of power, if they fall too far behind, then there is a risk that they put the brakes on everything that's going forward. And it's that that's benefiting to the folks in Silicon Valley, but it's also benefiting all the folks in China. And it's this notion that someone once taught me that sometimes the best way to be greedy is actually to be generous. That if you want to, if you want to keep getting ahead, then you have to be generous with people. Um, if you let them fall too far, far behind, if if inequality in in a in a group where there is a lot of political power, like the U.S. middle class, 
Anytime inequality gets too high, like the outcomes inside of a lot of societies, it tends to it tends towards very. Uh, I mean, I hesitate to use the revolution word, but it tends in that direction where where people start behaving in a way where they it, it becomes destructive to that forward progress. And I think Trump is a symptom of exactly that kind of behavior. Yeah, no, I think I think that's the case, and, and it's it's something that I think in, in we in tech need to be particularly careful of. I, I wrote about this in in the case of cars. I think we talked about this. It's so easy, particularly for a technical minded person, and if when you live in data, right, and everything it, you want to get everything concrete, you want things to be measurable and things to be be trackable, to get lost in that specifically, and to forget about the second and third order effects. And it's not it, this isn't just this isn't a political observation. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why. Uh, you know, I and many others feel that uh, Apple does product development better than other companies is the degree of consideration they give for things that can't necessarily be measured. Mm. Uh, and and so, the, the, and the point is not to uh, say that we need like it's just a good way to approach things in general. Is what are the What's happening that can't be measured? Being aware of those, being aware of second order effects, of third order, of third order effects, and I think that's something that uh, is hard to do in general. I I, I kind of suspect for those of us in technology, uh, who particularly when you know, what's the thing in technology you talk about? Is hard. Oh, can it scale? Can it scale? Mm-hmm. Can it scale? I, I remember the, my first day at, at Microsoft going into a meeting. And we're talking about like numbers. About it was so it was it was really cool. But oh, so this is what's happening in in Brazil. This is what's happening. Blah blah blah. It's just like going through different regions and countries of the world, and just very very uh, what's the word? Um, very not calculating, but very um, just it was just matter of fact. Mm. And that was how this product, particular product in question, and its performance and issues with it were being evaluated. And you know, you know, it's so. And Microsoft like has these, and it's a case for all big companies, but has unbelievable uh, analytics and numbers about how their products are being used and decisions are made based on that. Just very and, rational. Yeah, exceptionally, exceptionally rational, right? And. Yes, uh, and it was really cool. It's like wow. I mean, just I, I've never really appreciated what it means to operate at scale. It was, it was, it was basically being in that meeting and seeing how unimpressed everyone was by the fact we're talking about this this product, uh, like just basically hopping country by country. And, and it was, and it very quickly it became second order, second hat to me as well. But you step back and you think about that, like you are so far up, like you're sitting in a conference room in Redmond. Talking about a product that act that has very real impact and meaning to people on the ground, and you're just talking about it in the most abstract levels possible, impassionate levels levels possible, and man, how easy is it? And you can see why the bigger a company gets, the the more impersonal its products get, and the more problems that come along. You see this happening with Apple, quite frankly. You know, like there was. I remember uh, Phil Schiller uh, had, did an interview with John Gruber at at, at WWC last year, and you know, 
Gruber pressed him on on the the software issues that lots of people were complaining about when it comes to iOS and mm. and Schiller says something the effect of well according you know according to our numbers and blah 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 it's actually the the most the, the, the best version yet da 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 and I actually believe that's the case because again like the the the, the number of there there what happens with these things I, I don't know the specifics for Apple I wasn't in that department but I know what would happen with Microsoft and Windows for example uh, these these telemetrics that are built in and they send all this information back mm-hmm. and they know about crashes and all these sorts of things and uh, and there's a lot that they know about what's happening and they know what apps are used and how often apps are used and all this sort of stuff like the number of the amount of data Apple has about this is, is I, again I don't know for a fact for Apple but I'm sure it's there and it's staggering and you make and what happens is you have all this data, you have all this information, and you can see, for example, hotspots. Like, oh, this particular thing is crashing or there's a particular framework that causes crashes. And sure enough, you fix that framework. And I'm sure by the time iOS 7 or iOS 8 came along, all those hotspots were getting stamped out and they weren't happening. But what was happening was the actual feel of using the device and little niggling details that are only found and appreciated through your hands on the device that can't be seen in the data, that's the stuff that increasingly loses favor because it, you're just operating at such scale, it's hard to see the details. Mm. But the but to, again, I I'm theor- I don't know the details of of Apple and iOS, but I can imagine that probably from a numerical perspective, iOS probably is more stable and less has less bugs than ever before. But boy, it sure feels as a user that doesn't feel that way, mm. and that's what happened to Microsoft. And it's it's and it's what happens when you get so blinded by scale mm. that you lose the individual details. And it happens with products, and it happens with politics. Yeah, I, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's really interesting. I, the 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 funny sidebar on the Apple thing is it's always felt like because it was one of the. Whereas in 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 a lot of companies, the product they get that gets made gets shipped to the customer, and the 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 developer isn't always the customer. With Apple, it's one of these things that they very much live and breathe inside of their own products. Like they're the kinds of products. I mean, they talk about making them because they themselves want them, and uh, at least historically, that's always been something of a bulwark against what you're describing. But perhaps that was. I mean. I'm going to speculate here. Perhaps that was part of the magic of Jobs. Like he was the he was the bullshit test. Where yeah, guys, we're killing bugs, but this feels like crap. Why aren't you fixing it? And and maybe that's where some of the magic has gone. But what you've what you described also brought to mind something else that a lot of the people inside these organizations we talked about the over over rational analysis or hyper rational analysis of things. And from a rational perspective, I, I feel like these companies tend to attract people like that. The on the Myers Briggs scale, uh, whether you believe it or not, it's a helpful it's a helpful categorization. And these are extreme thinkers, oftentimes, and not so much feelers. Um, and the they focus on the the hyper rational answer, the the optimal answer from a from a rational point of view. And it's you talked about writing about uh, Uber and 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 the 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 the. Uh, uh, it's something that I wrote about too. Like when when the the, the events happen that cause the the massive um, the massive surge pricing to come into place, and from a rational point of view, it just makes so much sense. But then you step back and you use the example of the pregnant lady and the rich banker, and the pregnant lady's going into labor and needs a car. 
uh, she should be the one that gets it. She sh- she's the one that needs it. And But instead, because it's relying on resources and who can afford to pay the most, uh, it's, it's also, it's not just a case of who does need it the most, it's who has the ability to pay. And it's uh, people have come up with all kinds of solutions to this conundrum. They, they say that Uber should be, they shouldn't surge or they shouldn't, uh, that they should have some special mechanism to like let people in emergencies and all these things when really like I guess the point I'm trying to make is yes you can have this hyper rational approach and yes the hyper rational approach is absolutely correct but if you don't take account of the human condition in which you're applying this solution you actually run the risk of eliminating the ability to have the hyper rational approach in the best place in the first place it's like it's it's this is something that that optimally will be deployed but in order for it to be deployed and for it to stick you must be so aware of the context of the human condition that you're operating in and again so trying to bring that hyper rational approach to the broader context rather than just the local problem that you're facing yeah well, I forget to pray the lady I think just normal people feel right. yeah. feel that with with search with search prices yes the one other thing I, I would add, and I think this is a challenge with scaling any company, is there there are people, you know, there's the classic, oh, should I work at a startup or should I work at, you know, a big company mm. question and, and kind of like the way it's often framed as well at a startup, uh, you know, it's 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 much smaller, but you can you have much more impact on on decision making or on various things, put your hand on more pies, but you know, you're working at a at a timeless startup that maybe no one cares about. On the other hand, you're working at a place like Apple or Microsoft where you're very specialized. And you are you're, you're you're very constrained in many respects, but you are making decisions and doing things that impact millions of people. Mm. And it's and so it's like, where, do you want to have lots of local impact, but maybe a very limited broad impact, or mm. do you want to have limited local impact, which translates into very broad broad impact? Mm. And I think the challenge is that uh, the 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 sort of person that's attracted to one or the other, it, it shifts over time. When, when you're, if you're attracted to lots of local impact, you're going to be the sort of person that uses all your devices and uses all the, all the things. When you, when you are getting to someone who's attracted at the broad impact, mm. well, maybe now you, you, you are by, your, your tendency is to look at things in aggregate, to look mm. at the, the big picture. And it could be from a development perspective. It could be from a strategic perspective. I mean, the, the, th- the thing it wasn't just that Steve Jobs was, was an editor, which I think was his, his biggest, most critical function. It was that Apple didn't do that much stuff. I mean, Apple wasn't building Apple news, you know, like, I mean, like, do you think that our, 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 I'm curious how many Apple employees are, are sitting down at night and perusing Apple news as their primary news source. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's um, anyhow. We're 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 far afield of of what we're going to talk about. But it, it's it. I, I don't know. I I, I we were we weren't going to talk about the podcast, but I then I talked about it anyway. Uh, just because it's something that I've certainly been thinking about in the context of the U.S. and what's happening. But but also, I think it's something everyone needs to think about. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, if if I don't know, it's. And we need to think about it because if we're not thinking about it, then we run the risk. Yeah, of someone's not, thinking about it. Yeah, that that we run the risk of not being able to continue to do it, or for for the solutions that end up getting imposed to be so onerous that they end up having a dramatic impact on our ability to continue to do these amazing things. 
anyhow, um, so uh, I wrote this week about the uh, the the Fang companies, which is a which is a turn uh, a uh, acronym that was that was created by Jim Cramer at, at, at CNBC and something that CNBC has pushed, um, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and and Google. And what's interesting uh, and, and striking kind of about it is that the the entire reason why why Cramer made up this term was to describe was to that they were these were the four like growing you know real high growing tech stocks that everyone was piling into mm. and it w- didn't really have anything to do with the f- with the underlying principle of the company just that these four had been driving the market and that's the case so without these four stocks the S&P 500 actually would have been down last year it was wow. it was it was barely up simply because these four stocks were were were, were so high and what i th- what i thought was interesting and uh, and uh, frankly, a backwards way to talk about uh, aggregation theory, which which what I wrote about last summer, and we didn't get a chance to podcast about it, was very much more theoretical and started. This is the theory, and they'll see all these other companies fit. Well, what if you flipped on the other side and you just start with start with companies and and see what you can distill out backwards? And if you when you look at these these four companies, they're they're more they're striking similarities to to all of them. Um, Specifically, they are all front doors to their their space. Mm. They're where people go to get to the things that that, that are in that space, right? Mm. You go to Facebook or, or originally to connect to people. Now, just to go on the internet, right? I mean, you 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 love talking about the this the story about you know for, some people don't even know that Facebook is not the internet, mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, Amazon, you like. More and more, particularly if you're a Prime member, uh, if you want to buy something, you just go to Amazon, right? You don't even think about going. You don't even think about going somewhere else. Amazon captured 51 percent of new e-commerce spending last quarter, which is a massive, which is a massive amount. 25 percent of all new retail spending. People don't think they just go to Amazon. It's funny when you um, when you work inside of the t- a tech company, you get uh, an insight into where people are buying from when you walk into the package closet and. It is nuts. <laughs> it is absolutely nuts. The extent to which it is just dominated by Amazon boxes. Oh yeah, I mean Amazon. It, I mean, it, I, I I looked up the statistic. I was going to write about this before. I I don't have it off offhand, but um, U, UPS will, will will in FedEx will say that oh Amazon is is a small part of our business. Blah blah. blah cause they don't want investors to freak out. Well, it is a relatively small part from a revenue perspective, but from a package perspective, I've heard things something like something from two thirds to three quarters of a UPS truck, particularly in the holiday season, will be Amazon packages. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. Uh, um, as uh, Netflix, like increasingly, Netflix is probably the youngest in this transition. Um, but if you want to watch something, you just go to Netflix, right? And, and, and it's a front door to, to entertainment, and you get this funny situation where there's no question that Netflix is a long-term threat to companies like Disney or NBC Universal. Yet they're selling content to Netflix because they, the, mm. it's such a big part, big part of their bottom line. And the old, the granddaddy in many respects is Google. You want something on the internet? Where do you go? You you go to Google, and and. And what's happening in all these cases is because that – in a world of abundance where there's so much stuff and where everything – all these are digital companies. All the content that they're uncovering can be delivered for free. There are no distribution costs and there are no transaction costs. Each of these can scale to an effectively infinite number of people. Mm-hmm. Netflix just just at, at the drop of a hat immediately expanded to 130 new countries. 
I mean, if that doesn't if that doesn't get across what zero transaction costs means, I don't know what else can. Right. I mean, can you imagine in the pre-internet era, uh, any company saying we are now selling in 130 new countries? I mean, it's there. There are very few companies that sold in 130 countries. Period. Mm. Much less, much less at the drop of a hat. Yeah, just flick the switch and away you go. It's nuts, isn't it? It, it, it is, and so now. And and so they, they, because these are the key is discovery. They're where people start. Like this, this gives each of these companies incredible power and influence in their industry. One from a monetization perspective, they get to effectively tax the industry. Mm. Uh, you know, because whether it be through advertising in the case of Facebook or Google whether it be through a subscription fee like Netflix or whether it be through you know the margin they get uh, uh, in the case of Amazon or AWS certainly fits this sort of paradigm. Well, Prime is a subscription too. Yeah, yeah it is. It is, absolutely. Um, but on, on the back end, uh, the, the suppliers of what was thought to be the most valuable content, because they need to reach consumers, they have no choice but to fit in and accede to to the aggregators at the front end. And so, you know, publishers have to go on instant articles. They have to put their stuff on Facebook. They have to now focus on video because that's what Facebook is doing. Mm. Like they don't get to decide because they don't have access to the customers. Facebook does. Merchants have to sell on Amazon. They have to make Amazon-friendly packaging. They have to, they have to put Amazon distribution centers if they want to be, be, be in Prime. Uh, you know, Disney... And and NBC Universal and all the Viacom have to sell their shows to, to Netflix because that's 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 where the customers are. Even as Netflix is competing against them uh, for attention, and everyone has to, you know, the, for years. And this is this is a real canary in the coal mine. For years, every couple of years, there's always some group of publishers usually who want to rebel against Google and say Google is profiting off our backs. Blah 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 blah. Take us, you know, it's not mm. fair. We want to get money, and Google will just delist them or they'll demand <laughs> to be delisted. And within weeks, they come crawling back on hands and knees, saying, "Take us back, take us back. We've lost so much money. We've lost so much customers." And like th- that is such an encapsulation of the shift shift in power here and are you actually probably my favorite article that i've written about this was even before aggregation theory but it was uh it was about netflix last last summer and it, it actually used uh what one of um professor christensen's uh, uh theories which is the um the conservation of attractive profits mm. and basically the 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 fundamental idea of this is that there is a set amount of of the in a value chain in an industry there is some amount of profits to be gained and the company that that gets those profits is is the one that that delivers the sort of integrated solution that can't be copied can't be mimicked differentiated and then everyone else ends up being modularized around that fitting in around that and they're making you know they they're, they're being driven down to cost and it's not a very good place to be mm. And what happens is is what whether it be through disruption or whether it be through some other process, I actually don't think this what I'm describing is disruption. I think it's a different process, but we've already had that debate. Hmm. Um, is is someone else uh, comes in with the new sort of has the new choke point, has the new place to that that is irreplaceable, that is highly differentiated. Hmm. And what happens is the profits flow to that new place, and 
where the profits used to be becomes modularized. It gets right. all broken up. And that's exactly what you see happening. You had newspapers being highly integrated, and then the internet came along, and Google became the important entry point. All the profits, all the money flowed to Google, and newspapers got are getting got, got all broken up into, into articles, into components. Mm-hmm. And now you have online publications like Stratechery. Stratechery is, is a very niche, very focused – uh, blog on a very narrow aspect of technology with the strategy and business of it. I don't even write about products. I don't do gadget reviews. Mm. Like it, it, like if you think about it, the w- when you used to have publishing was of this big bundle that landed on your doorstep that had everything from the comics to the international news. Like like it's been completely fractured and broke up, broken up into pieces. Yeah, it's uh, and and the only way to really fight it if you're somewhere along that line is to be uh, effectively differentiated in some kind of way. And with news it's definitely harder. I think you've you're an excellent example of differentiating to the point where and, and you have a, a a new business model to fit around it. With retail it's I remember reading a really fascinating article by Andy Dunn who's the CEO of Bonobos talking about how to do e-commerce given that Amazon's come along right now. And basically, you have to differentiate in some way because that's, consumers are going to Amazon as the default, right? So you have to present something to them that's more important, that sticks in their head, that causes them to think, actually, what Amazon's going to present me with here is not going to be good enough, and I need something better than what they're going to to present me with. And so Bonobos is an example of that. There are a whole bunch of other luxury retailers that would be absolutely commoditized that or want to avoid commoditization and want to avoid Amazon, and they have to present some other kind of experience to get around it. Um, right. I mean, the, the way the way to if you're if you're one of these suppliers, mm. you either have two options. One, you win on cost, mm. which is you have lower cost than anyone else, and so you you can fit in with this. The, the problem is that's a brutal existence, right? I mean, because ev- everyone is always coming in to, to undercut you. You and it's a it's a worldwide competition. But it's, it's, it's interesting when the assumptions are reset. So I imagine we'll start to see brands that are, so if you don't need to worry about retail space, if you don't even need to worry about distribution, uh, like think about the kind of brand you would build in terms like how would you build a business to fit into Amazon and it's because the assumptions are reset uh, like yes it's obviously going to be low cost but there may may be other things that are really important and you just assume Amazon's the delivery mechanism now how do you build a business that slots into Amazon that will make you most successful it's an interesting question right and you're right like part of it is cost but if you're directly competing with Amazon and scale is some part of it then you're in you're in serious trouble Right, so there, there's 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 two. Yep. One one is cost, and mm-hmm. that's you could sell through Amazon. You just you have you sell it cheaper than anyone else, and mm-hmm. you can scrape out an existence. Probably you know try to make it up in volume. Um, but no, the other one the other one is is you have to differentiate to the point that you can get a, a direct connection with, with with the consumer, and and that becomes. You we're still in this environment where there is an abundance and it's harder to break through, which which means, yeah, it 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 it's both tougher and and easier in some respects. It's easier because there's things like the internet and there's it, the the cost of reaching customers is is low is lower, and or at least once you know who to contact, uh, and the ability to manufacture a niche. 
as it as it were, is much greater just because mm. you know I, I mean I sell to I haven't looked it up, but like tons and ten, tens of countries, um, you know, uh, all over the world, every continent, um, which was obviously not not possible before. So there there are certainly benefits, but yes, it, it's it, the the calculus the calculus has changed significantly, and it's changed. In, it, 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 this has lots of broad impacts. The everyone was. You know, you recall previously people were so concerned about, um, you know, if you're starting a company uh, today, like there was a time when everyone was scared of Microsoft. And I think part of what happened was was Microsoft did, did dominate. I think people forget like just how dominant they were, yeah. but it was a much smaller market then. Uh, it was primarily enterprise, and then people bought PCs at home that were the same as their PCs at work, and 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 especially as the market expanded, I think a big reason why Microsoft's dominance decreased wasn't so was that the market just got way bigger it, it, because it, it grew to encompass the consumer market, and the consumer market has always been much bigger than the than the enterprise market, and Microsoft as an enterprise company for lots of reasons that we get into wasn't able or successful in, in transitioning to that, which, you know, I think in retrospect is what we should expect. Um, but so that it was like, suddenly we're in this greenfield environment where there's all these new opportunities that, and that's always the best place to compete. You want to compete in a, in a completely new arena because you're not, it's not head on. It's not a zero sum sort of game, but now we're almost transitioning to this new period where there's a way less greenfield than before. Right, it, starting an e-commerce company in the year 2000 is a much different prospect than starting an e-commerce company in, in 2016. Simply because you're not competing against non-consumption, mm. you're competing against Amazon, <laughs> and and that's and because these companies, because they are so the the entire premise of aggregation theory and the entire reason why they are successful is because they are the closest to the consumer. And that gives you such a degree of feedback and and mm. forced flexibility. You don't get this sort of stodgy, this is the way we do it and we lose touch with our, our customer and we're over-serving them mm. because your entire business is predicated on being the closest to the consumer. And, and it, it's it's sustaining and your incentives are so aligned with with doing better and, and, and you get these winner-take-all effects because – you you dominate the consumer, mm. so your suppliers favor you. Mm. So they give you better prices, and they listen to your dictations. They get at you, which gives you a big advantage. Mm-hmm. Which um, this is why Uber dominates. This is why Google. This is why all these companies dominate because yeah. they get virtuous cycles. And yeah, it's it's a it's super tough to compete with. So it is super tough to compete with. I I I. So I really enjoyed the article. I did want to push back on one part near the end, and I think it's. Uh, uh, how relevant it ends up being uh, to companies that want to come in and compete in the future is a standing question. But I, it's interesting for 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 no other purpose than getting the history of this right. It's that you said that none of these companies are disruptors in the Christensen sense. They are not offering low margin, good enough products that appeal to customers who are overserved by in- incumbent companies. I I think right now that's true. I think. I wanted to ask you whether you think it's always been true because I, I think what's interesting here is understanding how they emerged and got to the point at which they did becomes interesting uh, for other companies potentially that want to that want to 
do the same thing. Now, I I also suspect that that other companies, in the same way that Microsoft ended up uh, being knocked off by someone that was in an adjacent space or companies that were in adjacent spaces, that's also going to be true. But the like Netflix or Amazon, for example, I do feel like these companies got their start. I mean, they got their start, like Netflix in particular is a great example. It got its start serving the low end, like mailing DVDs. And then even initially, I remember when the streaming offering was turned on, it, it, it had very like generally very low content and it was a low price play to get people involved for the most part most of the blockbuster movies when netflix first turned it on you still had to get the dvd sent to you they weren't available to stream so i no, i i'm glad we're on the same page that they're not necessarily disruptive now i mean because i think what's so interesting is is it's not so much that they've replaced the companies that came before. I mean, obviously, Blockbuster's out of business, and we can talk about that specific mm. example in a moment. But but what's interesting is they're more they're, the incumbents are all still there. Mm. They've just all been commoditized, right? And so what these companies are doing is almost enveloping the the entire industries that they compete in. And as opposed to the idea of like one firm comes along, it disrupts the other firm, the the, the incumbent firm. The incumbent firm goes mm. out of business and then the new firm kind of takes over. Like that's not really happening. All the incumbents are there. They're all struggling mightily mm. to the degree they're going out of business. It's not because they've been replaced. It's because they're now commodities who can't make a profit, right? Facebook is not publishing their own news. Right. But they're all, but they're completely destroying the news business, right? Uh, Google isn't isn't making paid, isn't creating knowledge. I mean, they are to, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're, I, they're, I do they're know. Indexing it all. Yeah, right. Now, as far as how they, so it's a good distinction I think you made, like the 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 way things are now versus how they got there. Mm. And I guess the way I would push back on, and and maybe this is where it's useful to distinguish between kind of low end disruption and new market disruption. Um, it, to to degree, you think about something like like Netflix. Um, you mentioned Netflix. Yes, Netflix. If your if if your axes of, of what you cared about, your your performance axes. What's the term? Yeah, um, no, yeah, 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 yeah. I, like if axes. what you care about is the latest movie as soon as possible. Right. Yes, Netflix was far inferior. Mm. But if you just love movies. If you were the sort of person that stopped by Blockbuster every other day to, to pick up some movies to watch, like Netflix was actually far superior, right? And and they were superior in that they had much greater selection, uh, not immediately, but after a year, they figured out the subscription model mm. where you were actually – you were paying less, but it, it, you were paying less uh, uh, not on a per-item basis, but because it was a different business model. Uh, and you didn't have to deal with weight fees, all sort of thing. They, like their performance was was very superior, and so I think the degree of orthogonality is just far more stark in these companies. And yes, I guess that does fit under a new market disruption angle in that you know the disruptive companies have some axes of competition. But I think the the, the big difference is instead of instead of getting people who weren't served. By the incumbent companies, they were actually taking the best com- the best customers, right? Netflix was taking the best customer from Blockbuster, not people who never rented from Blockbuster in the first place. Yeah, I, I don't have a so there are there are a lot of good points in there. Let me let me respond to the last one first. I don't have the data in terms of like 
which customers, I guess, unpack what we define as best customers in terms of people who love movies the most. It's easy to equate those as best customers. Inside of a business, though, and I think this is what disruption is driving at, inside of a business, the best customers are the most profitable customers. Now, I don't know if the people who love movies and come along and take one of the $2 weekly rentals are the most profitable customers as opposed to uh, someone who, who... comes in and just gets the the hit that's seven dollars for one night i don't i don't under, i don't have a good knowledge of 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 that um so putting aside the best customers yes there's that orthogonal thing and i feel like that's always been part of disruption though um the the example i would point to and one of the ways i think about this is um in terms of like the evolution of computing uh the the mainframe, like, and you look at how it got disrupted by the mini computer and then the personal computer. I, there are axes of performance uh, for the personal computer, or even the, the cell phone or the smartphone. There are axes of performance on which these disruptive devices are actually better than the incumbent devices. There's no way that a cell phone's ever going to be able to surpass a uh, mini computer or a mainframe in terms of its performance. But it's you're able to keep it with you, and there's something valuable in that. And I imagine that most of the people who use a mainframe uh, don't actually uh, like they do actually have a cell phone as well or a smartphone uh, but it's not going to replace it for all use cases and it's also an instructive example for another reason in that there are still mainframes around Um, there are still like it's it's not it's never been the case with disruption that just because an industry or a company gets disrupted that it gets absolutely wiped out Um, there are still like you can still go to IBM and buy a mainframe now admittedly there aren't too many companies left that still do that and I'm assuming even fewer people but it's not necessarily the death sentence like yes in a lot of instances it is but not all the time well that that's fair and I think it's one of those it's one of those things to kind of take this back to where we started where it it's all depends on on the context like Mm. yes Netflix there's a reason why Netflix versus Blockbuster tends to be a classic example of disruption but it turns out like think about something like 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 nokia right Mm. iphone versus nokia uh like what the the problem was viewing that as just cell phones when actually you had you know when you backed up in the context of computing it was was a different question and i think in the case of netflix yes if you look at just netflix versus blockbuster you, you can have a very a very uh you can talk talk about that disruption story, mm. but the the real context is uh, is like scripted entertainment, you know, and, and and for 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 drama and entertainment, something like YouTube, I think, is actually very disruptive. Where the cost of production is way mm. low, it serves a different sort of audience. Like my daughter's going to grow up watching totally different entertainment than I do because the we all this stuff that they find so f- attractive on YouTube, I don't get, mm. but. Netflix, yes, Netflix re- as a purveyor of DVDs or purveyor of entertainment disrupted Blockbuster. Blockbuster's out of business. G- granted, that, that that is kind of one on one, but what it, what I think is is also happening and is just as interesting, and I guess is the angle I was trying to get at with this article, uh, and when I had that line about they're not disruptors, <laughs> is yes, Netflix is was a disruptor in the context of blockbuster mm. but in the context of entertainment broadly i don't know that there's so much disrupting uh traditional entertainment companies whether that be be disney or MSU universal as in their again this sort of idea of enveloping them where they're commoditizing them mm. 
and they are forcing these formerly king of the hills to become mere paupers, you know, suppliers to Netflix, asking them to please give us some money. And and to me, that's a there's a different dynamic happening here that involves focusing on the top top the the best customers, uh, owning the customer experience, mm. and. And again, you could you could back way up and say, well, then relative to cable, they are disrupting cable. I mean, it's all it's all the sort of things. It depends on your framework and where you view for it. And I, I hope it's clear. It should be clear. I mean, maybe it's not clear. Um, like I come at this as a as someone who who just my foundation is in disruption and disruption theory, and um, I'm interested in in adding different ways to look at it, not to replace disruption, but rather. The, the part of the beauty disruption is the purity with which it describes a very specific things that happens to incumbent companies from and, and the incentives, all those sort of things right. that happen. And you can stretch it so far it becomes meaningless. And yeah. I think that's that's not doing anyone a favor. No, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I think I, I think that's exactly right. And I think what's most interesting about what you've written about and what we've talked about here is that the how the internet and the ability for a company to go directly to consumers, whereas previously there'd be distribution channels that 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 that, that got in the way, and the, the ability for a company to go to all consumers everywhere in the planet, which was previously never possible, how that's affecting these dynamics and how if these companies can deliver a great experience, the, the customer is just going to go straight to the company. It, it's it's going to be frictionless or it's going to be so delightful that people don't even think about going somewhere else. And it gives these companies uh, for which that, that develop these great experiences a tremendous amount of power. Now, I, I don't think that displaces uh, disruption. I think it's it's an uh, uh, it's an effect that's happening um, in addition to and and it's also interesting because it's it's interesting because the marginal cost of serving another customer is so low that actually in some instances or the experience is the same. It's it, you're talking digital goods. In 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 some instances, it makes sense to start with high end customers, and actually, this is one of my frustrations with disruption theory. And I think it's part of the reason why I think you might have written what you did with that line about the the companies that are disruptors in the Christensen sense, offering low margin goods, uh, good enough products that appeal to customers that are. I think part of it is that historically, the the companies coming in disrupting, coming in from the low end. It's not actually a causal part of disruption theory. It's actually correlative. It's actually, yes. it's actually incidental to disruption. I think the two core part, and, and as this plays out, as this effect that you describe plays out more and more, I think you're going to see the effects of disruption theory happen, but without that low end, that low end element. And I, I think when people, it, what are the causal elements? There are two causal elements in my mind of disruption that you need to think about and focus on if you want to talk about disruption. And one is, I mean, if you think about creative destruction being the macro description of what's happening, disruption is interesting, so interesting and insightful to me because it's the micro version. It's the behavior of the actors inside the companies deciding how they're going to respond to a threat from various places. 
that's one part. And the second part that's necessary for disruption is there needs to be some kind of scalable advantage inherent in the disruptor, such that it's not a Four Seasons versus uh, Best Western, but rather Four Seasons versus Airbnb. There's something inside the disrupting company that means that as they improve in performance, there's this massive scalable advantage such that they'll be able to kill the incumbents. No, that, that's, I mean, yes, If I absolutely agree. It's it's the low-end part that in particular uh, started me on this road of being a disruption critic because it, it was so, it so clearly missed the boat with, with, with Apple in many respects. Mm. Now, I, I, I think the big difference though is that in a, the physical world, that still yeah. really does matter, mm-hmm. right? Because totally. you're dealing with, with you, you don't have this zero margin component, mm-hmm. this zero mm-hmm. marginal cost component. And so, yeah, maybe the adaptation that's needed is to lose the low-end focus. And what's interesting, to go back to our quantitative stuff, I think people trigger on that because it's so easy to quantify. Yeah, it's so easy you know to identify. I mean? Yeah, you can hang on to it. It's reliable. Exactly. And it's, it fits in the spreadsheet perfectly, mm. right? I mean, yeah. which, is, which is so ironic that the disruption sort of advocates would fall into the same sort of spreadsheet mentality that, is so easy to criticize, right? But if you think about it, that's super easy to identify. It's super easy to measure. And so it's easy to walk on that this is a causal mechanism when, no, I think that's exactly right. If if we can agree that's correlative, and if I were to say what what makes disruption so attractive as a theory, it's this idea of almost inevitableness, Like, and, which is, I've always found it ironic that there's this whole consulting architecture around disruption when, to me, the, what makes it so powerful is this idea that, that incumbents are, are doomed, right? There's like nothing they can do about it because they're, 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 what, what they need. You see this with Netflix, right? You have these companies that are selling to their, yeah. the company that is going to doom them, right? I mean, they, they can't are, help it. They can't help it. Their financial interests are are totally at odds with their strategic interests. And when you're in that position as a company, I don't care how many consultants you hire, how many books you read, you're in big trouble. And to me, that that is disruption in its purest form because your incentives are totally misaligned with where you need to go strategically. And yes, if we can narrow – and again, notice we're narrowing. We're not expanding. If we can narrow the definition of disruption to that, then sure – Absolutely, it's Christensen disruption. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, uh, I'll, I, I, yeah, I, I, not to disagree with any of what you said. I absolutely agree with it. I think if you can frame the problem around one of timing. And this is why I think so many founder-led companies are able to get over this or to look past it or to be willing to, uh, like in a certain sense, right, what Netflix did with streaming, there was a serious risk of cannibalization of what was what was their previous business, which was mailing the DVDs. But the, the founder-led companies so often are able to take a longer-term longer term point of view on these things, and, and in which case... Uh, you are able to overcome it because you know that this existing engine that you have that's spitting out your profits, it's going to die. The issue is if you only think about it in terms of quarters or even over the next year, you'll just try and keep the engine going. If you take a longer term point of view, you can overcome it. And companies have, like in- Intel managed to do it. Um, Intel's an example, though they've lost their way. Um, People who are aware of it and have the uh, the appropriate power to like resist this urge to go into short termism can overcome it. 
So yeah, well, well, when Intel did it, it was Andy Grove, right. who was one of the th- one of the founders, right? And and uh, and he's a big he's a big Christensen fan. And if you understand it and you can resist the pressures, then you can do it. But all these companies that are succumbing to Netflix, I'd I'd argue that many of them that the maybe maybe they can see it, maybe they can't. But even the ones that can see it can't resist succumbing to the pressures that are causing them to sow the seeds of their own destruction. One thing, one thing, one final point to make, and we're going a little long, mm. but um, that, that, that I think about Netflix, and the reason why I'm hesitant, like that, I think so important to understand about how they came about, mm. and I think this happened with all these companies, is uh, at the beginning with the DVDs. I, again, my my contention is they were offering a superior service for some, yeah, for a niche of customers, right? Sure. And the movie lovers, the movie, the movie buffs. What what was and then Netflix changed to the streaming and they changed to original shows. What was consistent in Netflix's pivots was they were continually expanding and leveraging their core group of customers. And, 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 and this is, and this is, I think a common to all these companies uh, and, and to the, and again, a big thing about aggregation theory is being the closest to the customer. And so when Amazon, or sorry, when Netflix went to streaming, yes, the streaming selection sucked, but they weren't. If if Netflix had started out as a streaming service with the selection they did, mm. they may have never got off the ground. There mm. were lots of actually, there were other streaming startups that that failed. What did Netflix have that those other ones didn't? They had the core committed group of customers who they had streaming as an add-on to what they already love, the DVD mm. business, and then that, that allowed them to to grow beyond that. And I, I think this is this is so critical uh, to to have when you own when you own some set of customers mm. that lets you that gives you so much more leverage in every area you expand into. You see with Uber, right? Uber started with Uber Black and it was much more expensive than taxis. Mm. But they established this core group of customers and then they leverage that into the next thing. And 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 what the consistent with all these companies, and this is something that Apple does do. Again, yeah. Apple doesn't fit in aggregation theory because of the they're selling they have significant you know, marginal costs. And that's why they, they'll never serve the whole market. But what Apple is so good at doing is leveraging the loyalty of its customers into dominating its suppliers, right? Apple has made the world telecoms industry. It's for lack of a better word, <laughs> despite the fact that industry ruled forever mm-hmm. and was huge and, and all that sort of stuff. And it's because Apple's customers were more loyal to Apple than they were, were yeah. to them. And that's the, that's that is the case for all these companies. You think about Netflix; they lose content every single month, and they only grow stronger. It's interesting. It's it's really. I mean, and and this is the this is this is yeah. This is the fascinating stuff, and this is the stuff that's just happening now, and it's happening because. I, I, the the observation around Apple is is fascinating, but Apple with the iPhone, the the iPhone as an offering is not getting weaker, is not losing the equivalent of content. Uh, Netflix is, and yet they're adding more and more subscribers. It's it's like this is the stuff around this zero marginal cost thing and delivering a great customer experience and owning that customer relationship. Well, and, and they're laddering up to something new, something something different, right? Right. I mean, you 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 couldn't you could not create a startup that 
that creates original content like Netflix did. It's it's impossible, and and it's a multi step process. Mm. But the one, but this sort of leveraging up and laddering up they've done at every step along the way, all the things they've done have been different in the various stages and things they focused on. The one consistency has been an ever an an unceasing focus on delivering. Uh, on building a loyal customer base. Right. And and so if you want to build you talked about what's the advice for managers. Well, for one, I would probably not take on these companies because they they own the they own customers to such a power to such a powerful extent. But two, if you're looking to go into other industries like Airbnb and hotels or Uber and transportation broadly, it uh, is find what what's the one thing that you can deliver using today's exist using existing technology mm-hmm. like Netflix started out with DVDs in the US yeah. postal service yep. but the one thing that the internet enabled was just like Amazon was wide selection that's why that's why that's why yeah. Jeff Bezos chose books yep. right Amazon started out you would order on Amazon and then Amazon would go order from the distributor get the book and then ship it on like they, they it was but what they could offer the internet enabled was basically an infinite selection. Mm. You find that one thing and then you, you get the core customer mm. and you get that core customer and then you can leverage that customer into the next thing, whether that be streaming, whether that be CDs, and then you get more core customers and, and they love you and they're loyal and you serve them and you give the most awesome experience and it's narrow and it's focused, but it gives you leverage yeah, to go to the next thing. That's that's awesome. That's great advice. Like, I, I this is, I guess, one of my biggest frustrations with so much business research or whatever you want to call it is that ultimately, I mean, there are interested parties that like to understand what happened, but ultimately the reason for its existence is to help managers get smarter. And what you just described is great advice, like find a niche, deliver something people can't live without, and then leverage that to get better and better and better. And I, I, I guess you're, you're right. And like, to your point, don't be afraid to leave it behind, right? Netflix left behind. Yeah. Netflix does not deliver DVDs anymore. Yeah, totally. I, and I guess, I guess the one thing that, that is also really interesting is when, um, when these models collide. Like when you think, I mean, we, we've ta- you talked about Fang and there's Amazon and Netflix. And what's really, what's going to be fascinating to me is like, the, this is like uh, unstoppable force meets, meets immovable object, right? Like yeah. Amazon's coming at this from traditional media and they're starting up Prime Video. And Netflix is coming at this also from like, from the historical way you'd go to Blockbuster. And like seeing these guys both with fantastic customer relations and owning that customer relationship and trying to leverage each other leverage those customers to win the same market like it's gonna be fascinating watching that play out absolutely absolutely well we've we've gone long we could go many hours on netflix is netflix is is so fascinating um but uh yeah i i I have to i have to go pick up my son so i have to get going all right sounds good All right. Um, our thanks to uh, uh, our thanks to Wealthfront for for sponsoring this this episode of uh, disruptive this episode. a disruptive company that that has a great customer experience that owns That's, the customer relationships. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Wealthfront's interesting because it automates habits and strategies investors should be using on a regular basis, but normally aren't. Uh, great investing is a marathon, not a sprint. And little things you may not be familiar with, like automated tax loss harvesting, rebalancing, and smart dividend reinvesting, could add up to very large amounts of money over time. 
Uh, Wealthfront does all those things to your money automatically. As an exponent listener, you get $15,000 managed for free if you decide to open an account. But just start with seeing the portfolio that they would suggest for you. Take two minutes, fill out their questionnaire at wealthfront.com forward slash exponent. It's free, and this is the best part. You don't even need to give them your email address. Uh, Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Investing in securities involves risk, and there's the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Yes, enjoy your time with your family, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.